Welcome to the Ark Stories Podcast. Ark Stories are true, personal, and told in person at Ark Stories events by the people who live them. Our podcast brings recordings of those stories straight to you for your listening enjoyment. I'm your host, story coach Chris Kinsley. One of the hallmarks of ARC stories is that all of our stories are personal, meaning they are about something that the storyteller themselves lived. Sometimes these stories are primarily about something our teller witnessed about someone else. However, more often than not, our tellers themselves are the main characters. They're the heroes. And my personal favorites are when our heroes find themselves in situations they never expected and are not quite equipped to handle as successfully as they'd like. Well, today we have two such stories where our tellers are thrust into some pretty awkward situations. This first one is from an event we hosted back in 2013, where our theme was What Goes Up? Stories About Cause and Effect. So brief content warning, this story is not about sex, but it does acknowledge its existence. Okay? Here's storyteller Jamie Golden. In my circumstance, it's generally always what you don't know will humiliate you in front of other people. Um, and that happens to me, um, sadly, like every Tuesday. Um, but I'm going to just stick to one story. Um, and for me, I don't know a lot. I came in not knowing a lot. Let me tell you why. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Wow. And um, uh, my parents didn't curse or drink or hang out with people who do. And uh, I burned my uh, Pearl Jam CD because I rededicated my life to God. And I also like, got rid of my Cindy Lauper first tape I ever owned because I found out some things about those songs that were not appropriate for someone who was going to live a pure life. Um, I had a several True Love Waits rings. Um, I was going to wait and not, so I didn't know anything about you know, sex or things that lead to sex other than drinking, right? <laughs> drinking leads to sex. So that's why I didn't drink, because that's what happens. So fast forward to uh, I get invited to a wedding, a destination wedding, which is usually always really exciting. Um, but this destination wedding was in Flint, Michigan, <laughs> um, which is the first thing you shouldn't do if you're really thinking about cause and effect is don't go to weddings in Flint, Michigan. Uh, there's not anything like, oh, where are we going to have the wedding luncheon? Um, Popeyes, because that's what's there. There's not, there's not a lot going on in Flint, Michigan. And so I gather with a group of friends who all are um, that love God and have chosen to burn their CDs too. And so we're all focused. Um, they, they are not doing true love waits because they're all married, but me. And so I'm the only one true love waiting at this point. And so we get into a Chevy conversion van because we don't fly. Why would you fly to Flint, Michigan from Birmingham when you can get in a Chevy conversion van with an extended cab with eight of your closest friends and drive to Flint, Michigan? So we did that. And all of the friends that were with me were in the wedding. So they were either a bridesmaid or they were a groomsman. And it was just me because I don't want to not go. So I went. All right. So we end up in Flint, Michigan. It's a beautiful ceremony. Beautiful for Flint, right? And so it's a beautiful ceremony. 
And afterwards, we're taking wedding pictures, right? So all the groomsmen and bridesmaids have to go up front and have these wedding party pictures taken. So I'm in the back. Now, the reception is going to be, you know, like at the Kiwanis. So I'm dressed up, obviously, because maybe true love won't have to wait much longer. And so I have on... I have on this gorgeous little black dress and four-inch heels and big Alabama hair and fake eyelashes, and I'm ready to go. So I'm sitting in the back, on the back pew, just waiting, just waiting. And all of a sudden, the groomsmen start making their way towards me with, like, intention. And I think, oh, well, no, they're all married. This is no good. This is no helpful. But, what, hey, so they come up, and they're like, hey, listen, um, we need you to go get something. I was like... Oh, oh, okay, what, what? Well, the groom has forgotten something that he needs to make his wedding night a success. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Oh, what, like what, like what? And they're like, we need you to go buy lubricant. Lu lubricant? What, what do you do with the lubricant? Like a, like a WD-40? Is that, like I don't, I don't understand. They're like, no, no, no. We need you to get KY jelly. I'm like, K Kentucky jelly? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. So bottom line, I'm now headed in a little black dress and four-inch heels and big Alabama hair to a Rite Aid in Flint, Michigan to hunt down my first ever purchase of KY jelly. So I make it into the Rite Aid, and my first thoughts are, where do you find KY jelly? Is it like is it near the Depends? Like, is it more like eye drops? Like, is it in a section? Like, for a night out? Like, what do you do? So I wander around a bit, like up and down aisles, because this is the only thing I need, right? So I'm going up and down aisles, not really finding anything, and all of a sudden I sense someone behind me. And as I turn, it is the most attractive, adorable, little 22-year-old Jason, who has a red Rite Aid vest on, and he's like, can I help you find something? <laughs> All right, so here's where the, like, do I flirt? Or do I not flirt? Can you flirt when you need KY jelly? Is that something you can do? How can I work that out? And so I'm like, um, um, I'm looking for toothpaste. Because I think, well, at least I can spend time with him while we go find the toothpaste that I don't need. So he he's like, sure, let's come this way. You look so pretty. Oh, thanks, thanks. And so we go to three aisles over, and there, of course, is tooth hygiene products. And he's, like, waiting for me to say Colgate or Crest or whatever. I'm like, um, yeah, I'm just going to browse for a second. But thanks, because I don't need toothpaste. And so I wait. He goes away, and then I'm... I'm back on the track, right? Well, I don't know if you know, you probably all know, like if I sent you to Rite Aid, you know exactly where the KY jelly is. And so, you know where KY jelly is? If you've never purchased KY jelly and you're in a little black dress and four inch heels and big Alabama hair, it's right in the pharmacy. And it's right below that window because you're gonna have to purchase it looking at a jury of your pharmaceutical peers. Right? You're going to have to do that. You have no choice. So I go, I find, there are so many lubricant products. Like, I'm like, I don't even know where to start. And then I start getting distracted because I'm like, wow. Like, wow, that's what you do with it? Those instructions seem complicated. You know, I, I, and then I think, I think the pharmacy tech is staring at me. 
And let me tell you, if the pharmacy's tech is staring at me, she's definitely judging me. So I'm like, okay, I got, I got, I can't get distracted. Can't get distracted. Can't get distracted by Jason, the, the Rite Aid guy. I cannot get distracted by the directions on the back of this box. And so I grab my stuff, and then I slowly make my way to the main aisle where I can see the cash register because I cannot check out with just anybody. I need to see which register is going to get me in a situation with the least amount of embarrassment. And I notice it's like 60-year-old Gladys. I'm like, perfect. I mean, she may judge me. That's fine. But it's 60-year-old Gladys. She's probably had sex. This is not going to be weird for her. <laughs> so I grab it, and, you know, I've got it, like, cupped, like, like, like you can't see what I'm purchasing. And then I realize as I'm standing, I'm in, like, three-people line, I think, you cannot just buy KY jelly. Like, you cannot come into Rite Aid, and that be the only thing you purchase. That's humiliating. So I grab Tic Tacs, <laughs> a logical companion piece, and wait in line. Well, of course, the moment I go to put the KY jelly and the Tic Tacs on the counter, Gladys is going on break. <laughs> Guess who's checking me out? Jason. Jason. And so I don't even look up. Like, this is the moment where we're going to have to make a decision that we're going to do this without any acknowledgement of what is happening. And so I keep my eyes down. I put my 20 which is great, pay with cash, little black dress, big hair, KY jelly. My, of course you're gonna pay with cash. And so I put my cash on the counter, my KY jelly, my Tic Tacs, I look down, you can just put it all in the bag. You can just put it all in the bag. I'm not gonna look directly at you. Just put it all in the bag. He puts it all in the bag. I look up, he hands me the bag, but he doesn't let go. Because he's gonna force my hand to look him in the eye. And he has this glimmer, and I suddenly, ADD, hi, hi. He said, he leans in close. You know that's not toothpaste, right? <laughs> Cause and effect. Jamie Golden is a baker and a digital marketer. In fact, she handles all of our digital marketing for Arc Stories. She also co-hosts a weekly pop culture podcast with Knox McCoy called The Popcast. I am both a regular listener and supporter of the podcast, so I can highly recommend it. You can find it everywhere you have found this podcast, as well as knoxandjamie.com. And you can find Jamie on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Jamie B. Golden. Okay, listen, I really do love Knox and Jamie's podcast. In fact, we normally release our episodes the same day they do, so there's a chance that while you're listening to this, I am actually listening to them. So please finish listening to this episode of Arc Stories first, but then go check out the podcast. It's like if Entertainment Weekly and Us Weekly were people and they got together and had a baby, and then Variety and Rolling Stone were people and they got together and had a baby, and then those two babies grew up in the South and started a podcast. Now, you see what I did there? How I gave you my personal endorsement and then also tried to give you you know, some idea of what the show was like that makes it sound great. Yeah, that's a review. And we would love to ask for you to review us, the Arc Stories podcast. If you have a podcast or a blog or a social media account where you want to recommend and review us for your listeners, readers, or followers, then that would be awesome. But where we'd really like your review is on iTunes. It helps us get noticed. It helps other people to find us. And we really, really do appreciate it. So thanks to all of you that have already done that. 
Unfortunately, I don't have any new reviewers to thank this episode. So go on, write your review, and I'll catch you the next time around. All right, back to the stories. In this next one, our teller finds himself in not one, but two highly awkward situations. One comes at him completely out of the blue, but the other is tragically somewhat of his own making. From an event we hosted where our theme was out with the old stories about change, here's storyteller Richard Banks. I was coming back from South Haven, Mississippi, driving from there up to my mom's house in Midtown Memphis. I was living with her at the time, and, and uh, I, was, uh, I was in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. I was 18 years old. I was about 10 minutes into the drive, and mom sitting in the passenger seat. I'm driving, that's important. And she all of a sudden leans over and she turns the volume of the radio all the way down. She sits back in the passenger seat and she just stares, stares out the windshield. Now footnote number one, as a kid, I did more than my fair share of what we'll call stupid stuff. And um, uh, I was either in trouble or I figured I was about to be in trouble. So I'm figuring at this moment, the shoe's about to drop. And for what seems like an interminable amount of time, she just kept staring out the window of the car. And um, then she pops up with this singer, Richard, John is not your father. I, what? <laughs> she repeats, John is not your father. Now, footnote number two, John was the man that I'd called dad ever since I could remember. I thought he was my father. I knew that they had been married and divorced twice. The most recent divorce had been just a couple of years before this event in question. And footnote number three, when mom gave me these big talks in life, you know, birds and bees, stranger danger, drugs are bad, she sat me down in a real sort of caring, comfortable, warm environment. So you can imagine my astonishment when she tells me, drops this bombshell in my lap and I'm doing 60 miles an hour driving up the interstate. So, you know, the words that she's just told me are bouncing off lobe to lobe and they're vaporizing every thought in my head, you know, breathe, watch, listen, steer. And I'm beginning to just sink down into the driver's seat like the unmolded clay that I now realize that I was. And all the interstate accoutrement, you know, the, the lane stripes, the street lights, all the other cars just turn into so much visual noise until I hear a real noise, which is a truck back behind us honking at us because I'm about to veer into him and knock him off the road, no telling what could have happened. And well, so, you know, we, we make it, I, I ask mom, I say, so, you know, tell me more, you, you gotta fill me in here. And so, you know, she says, no, maybe we should talk about this when we get home. And I say, well, I'm thinking, yeah, that would be the safe thing to do. But I say, no, no, you know, I, you've just opened Pandora's box here and, and I can't wait the extra 20 minutes to get home, so you gotta tell me now. And so she reluctantly be begins to tell me that in between her marriages to John, she was married to a man named Don, and Don was actually my father. They'd been married for about three years. They got divorced. We left Don in California and then moved back to Memphis. Subsequently, mom marries John again. And um, he legally adopts me, he becomes a great dad. Mom was and is a great mom too. So we get home, no real physical damage. Of course, we're emotionally wrecked at this particular point. And I've got some new baggage. So it's baggage as you'll hear, I carry for years. And, 
Um, so I'm going to fast forward at three years, and I'm graduating from college, and I'm planning my post-college graduation trip to go across this great country of ours with the final destination of, guess where? My father's house. So mom, you know, she sanctions this whole thing, and she gives me his address. She also gives me a big chunk of change to help me get out there, a chunk of change that she could ill afford to give me at that particular time. She was going to law school at night. She was working during the day. And she also gives me a bit of advice, which is don't expect a warm embrace. Fair enough. So I'm planning this trip with my then roommate, George. And this could be a whole other arc light story, but for the sake of time, suffice it to say, we had a great time going across the country. We did all the highlights, and it was great time. And as we're getting closer to the final destination, which is the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm beginning to get really anxious, really nervous. And it's been prearranged that George is going to drop me off at the house of two friends. George had some family to see in the, in the San Francisco area. And so he drops me off at the, at the house of Richard and Mark, two of my buddies from Memphis. I'd known them from playing in bands together with them. And Richard, in particular, had taken me under his wing and had been really nice to me this whole time. And as I was corresponding about this trip, and he said he would not only be happy to take me up to my father's house, he'd be honored. So I crashed that night at their house. Don't really get much sleep. Next morning, get out to the car. Mark decides at the last minute that he wants to go as well. You know, fine, the more the merrier. Mark didn't really know the whole story here. So we're getting in the car. We're pulling on the Highway 1. We're heading north up to where I think my father lives. And Mark all of a sudden turns around, looks at me, and he goes, so did you call your father and let him know you're coming? And I say under my breath, uh, no. Well, Mark's incredulous at this point because he's going, dude, we're, this is a three-hour round trip. What do you mean you haven't called him? You don't know if he's going to be there. At which point, Richard, who knows the story a little bit better, interjects and says, you know, his father hasn't been a part of his life in 18 years. So what makes you think he's going to be a part of his life now if he calls and asks if he can visit? Mark, oh, okay, he gets it. And then he turns around and looks at me and he says, so it is kind of ballsy of you to visit him on Father's Day. Now, <laughs> let me just say that had I had my druthers, I would not have been going to visit him on Father's Day. You know, Hallmark doesn't exactly make a card for the situation, neither does some e-cards. If they did, it would probably say, hey, you planted my seed, look how I've grown, surprise! <laughs> so, it was just how the calendar crumbled, it was just how it was all working out. There was something cosmic about it, you know, and it also provided some kind of comic relief. Richard was sort of a merry prankster, and so the two of them were sort of razzing me the whole way up there. It was at least providing a, a sense of distraction, but I'm getting more and more nervous as we're getting closer to where I think he lives, and we pull off the highway, we drive a little ways, we drive through this modest suburban golf community, then we pull up in front of this mo modest suburban golf house, community house, and um, I look at the address that my mom has given me, I look up there, and it's the same one. I tell the guys, I say, to stay parked out here on the street. I was too nervous for anybody to hear what was about to transpire. So I get out of the car and I freeze. And I'm shaking, kind of like I am now, but my knees are really knocking. And I muster up the courage, I take a deep breath, I turn on my heels and I basically make this dash up to the door and I start to knock. And just as I start to knock, I see this movement out of the corner of my eye. Remember how I told you that Richard, I told him to park on the street? Well, he's pulling the car all the way up in the driveway, getting as close as he can to the front door. And he's not only doing that, but he's leaning out the driver's side window and he's got this you know what eating grin on his face. And I, you know, before I could process this, the door opens. And there stands before me is a man that's about half an inch taller than me. 
He's got gray hair on his, ha- on his head. He's got gray hair in his beard. And he says with this rather cordial tone, hello. And I say, uh, uh, are you Don? And he goes, why? Yes, I am. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really him. And I say, well, hi, I'm Richard Banks. And he goes, well, good to meet you. And he starts to stick out his hand as if to shake my hand. I interject really quickly, well, I'm your son. Well, he pulls his hand back and he falls back into the house. And at this particular moment, I'm thinking he's going to slam the door in my face. So I take this as my cue to jump in the house. And this freaks him out. And he's trying to block my egress, you know, from getting any further into the house. And I realize the awkwardness of the moment. I go, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm Richard. I'm your son. I've just come out here to meet you. I just want to talk to you. And he goes, what a surprise. <laughs> now, understand that the memory of this particular moment, this event is pretty hazy. I don't quite have everything down just perfectly, but about at this point, he leans out the front door of his house and he looks around at the driveway and there's Richard still leaning out the, 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 the door of his, or the window of his car and he looks at me and he goes, well, I think he's just trying to make uh, some sort of conversation at this point. And he says, well, who are they? And I say, well, that's Richard and Mark. They live in Walnut Creek. They're my friends from Memphis and they brought me up here at this point. I just start rambling. I got a serious case of diarrhea of the mouth. I'm really nervous. And I say, well, but actually it was my roommate George who brought me up here. George, he's gone off to visit some friends and family in, in, in San Francisco. I don't really have a car. Did I tell you I graduated from college? And he stops me kind of right there in the middle and he says, today is not a good day. And I said, well, I don't really want to take much of your time. I just want to talk for a little bit. And he says, well, I'm sorry. I'm planning for a big meeting tomorrow in San Francisco, and I just don't have the time. And I say, well, San Francisco, that's where I'm going to be staying tomorrow. Great. I can meet you anytime, anywhere. And he says, no, sorry. I can't do it. Well, I'm sure I looked crestfallen at this point, and I think to a certain extent, just for him to save face, he all of a sudden pipes back up, and he has this sort of cordial tone back in his voice, and he says, well, I tell you what, why don't you come out here tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, and we'll have breakfast and chat. Well, he's playing me for a fool. He's bluffing. I just told him this about my buddies from Walnut Creek. He knows that they can't bring me up here with my roommate George visiting family. I don't have a car. He knows all this. He's bluffing. So I say to him, I can't make it up here tomorrow. Can't we just meet in San Francisco? He says, no, I'm sorry. At this point, I realize he's got his hand on the door, and he's starting to shut the door, and he's pushing me back out. And he says goodbye, and the door shuts. Well, I'm just sort of standing there. And I look over at Richard. He slipped back down to the driver's seat of the car. He told me later he was kind of embarrassed for leaning out the car window like that. And I move back over to the car, and I get in the back seat. Richard, he's got his hands on the steering wheel so tight that his knuckles are white. And he says to me, if you want me to kick in the door, just say the word. He threw a couple expletives in there as well. (laughs) And I just sighed. And he takes his hands off the steering wheel, and he slams them down on the dashboard, at which point I get a look at Mark's face. And Mark looks like he's about to witness a murder. And so I just say, no, let's let's just get out of here. So Richard, he starts up the car, he throws it in reverse, he slams on the accelerator, he lays rubber in my old man's driveway, he gets out on the street, he throws it in in drive, he he lays on the accelerator once more and puts down rubber in front of the old man's house and we're on our way. On the way home, of course, Richard and Mark are trying to make me feel a little bit better. Heck, I'm trying to make them feel better since it was such a buzzkill. We get back to the hotel room where um, George has rented this room. He's not back yet, so the guys stick around for a little while and uh, trying to make sure I'm okay, but eventually they got to leave, and I'm left there alone. I'm just thinking to myself, you know, what am I going to do? And I just can't sit here. Well, 
I decide, and there's no delicate way to put it, I decide I'm going out, I'm getting drunk. So I head down to the world famous I-Beam, which was on uh, The Hate in San Francisco, and they're playing as a band called Beat Farmers, and the Beat Farmers had a, um, a front man by the name of Country Dick Montana, and Country Dick Montana had this thing where he would sort of get at the front of the stage during the show, front of everybody, and everybody in the audience was dousing with beer. It was the perfect environment for that particular moment in my life. I had a great time, at least what I remember of it. And pretty much the next thing I remember is waking up in the hotel room the next morning. It's 6.30 and the alarm's going off. Well, apparently I'd set the alarm that night before I probably passed out, went to sleep, whatever. And it was to get me up in time to call the old man and beg him one more time, plead with him, if I could meet him in San Francisco. And he says no. A few more words are exchanged. I don't really remember what they were, but he hangs up the phone, and I didn't so much as hang up, hang up the phone as throw it across the room. And I sit there for a few minutes, and I think to myself, well, at least I tried. I gave it a shot. At least I followed through. Well, you know, all good things must come to an end, and George and I had to hightail it back home, get back to Memphis with 57 cents in my pocket, and a whole bunch of new baggage baggage that I continue to carry around for a few years, eight to be exact. And that's when I got an attitude adjustment in the form of mine and my wife's one and only child. Now I'm going to back up again and tell you that when I found out that my father had abandoned me, I pretty much decided right then and there that I was going to have a kid. I was going to show the old man how to raise a child properly and I was going to make up for his mistakes. Well, as my wife was pregnant and going through this 270-some-odd day gestation period, I began to think to myself, is that really a good reason to have a kid? <laughs> and I began to have doubts, and I also began to think to myself, you know, maybe I'm going to make the same mistakes that my father did. You know, a lot of us parents have these doubts, right? So by the time July 15th, 1993 rolled around and the nurse is standing across the delivery room motioning for me to come and hold my son for the very first time, my confidence was shot. Here I am again, standing there frozen, knees knocking. And I take a deep breath and basically jog across the delivery room, reach out, grab my son, hold this bundle of tears and snot for the very first time. He's screaming, you know, like newborns do, and newborn, new dads, you know, we're crying, I'm crying too, and I'm looking at him. And I say to him, I'm sorry. I didn't script this. I didn't think this through before I grab him and hold him, and I said, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna make a whole bunch of mistakes. But you know what, kid, you're stuck with me. And it was at that moment, I realized later, that I had sort of let go of that old baggage. At least most of it, I had to save some of it kind of for a souvenir, you know? And <laughs> I picked up this new bundle, this new golden opportunity. And I'm proud to say, now 21 years later, that our son, Aaron, he's the one about to graduate from college. And I'm really proud to say that he's still stuck with me. And, you know, now I'm the one watching him grow and morph into this adult, this incredibly caring, kind, intelligent adult. And, you know, I think back to that trip I took almost 30 years ago. And, um, you know, I was there 
to try and find my father, but instead what I found was that I had the courage to follow through and be a dad myself. Now, I should say this too, that a while back I asked my mom why she picked what at least I consider an inopportune moment to tell me about my father, and she said that just a few days prior to that, someone had almost slipped up and spilled the beans, and she felt it very important that she be the one to tell me. She also said, too, she felt like it had been going on for too long, but she just hadn't been able to get up the gumption to tell me. And uh, so as for why she told me while I'm driving at 60 miles an hour down the interstate, she says, well, it was because I finally did get up the nerve, and I was afraid that you know I had to tell you before I did lose the nerve. So apparently, that impulsiveness in my bloodline is a family trait that will never change. Thanks a lot. Richard Banks is editorial director for Red Barn Media Group. Find him on Twitter at RichBanks1. Now, before we go, I want you to know that we would love to have you come to one of our live events. And we actually have two this month. The first is a special spotlight event in partnership with the Birmingham Botanical Gardens in Birmingham, Alabama, and will be held at the gardens this Friday, May 13th. Our theme will be Roots, Stories About the Nature of the South. You can find more info and get your tickets at bbgardens.org. Then we have one of our regular events coming up in just a couple of weeks on Saturday, May 28th at the Avon Theater in Birmingham. Our theme for that event will be POV, Stories About a Change in Perspective. Trust me, you are going to want to get your tickets ahead of time, and you can do that at our website, arcstories.com. And that's our show today. Thank you for listening to the Arc Stories podcast. I've been your host, Chris Kinsley, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley. Arc Stories is at all those places, too, at Arc Stories. This podcast is produced by Taylor Robinson and myself. Francisco D'Andrea composed our theme. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Senia Etheridge, Aaron Moon, and Nate Dreger for making this episode possible. Visit us online at arcstories.com. There you can listen to other stories, you can stay up to date with all of our events, and you can even submit your own story to tell. After all, we are always asking, what's your story?